Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 97. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and we're recording this episode on November 28, 2022, in Austin, Texas. On the small chance you do not know already, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. First, before we get to the history fun, a couple of brief announcements. The gift-giving season being upon us, I do want to remind you to look at the two t-shirt and sweatshirt designs we have for sale via the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. If you go to the website, click on the About tab at the top of the page. You will see a button for the merch store. My favorite is the sweatshirt that says, Historia est magistra vitae, which means history is life's teacher on the front and the History of the Americans podcast on the back. Wear it all winter, especially when hanging out with history buffs. I also got a nice email from Dave of Glenadon Beach, Oregon. He went over to Little Whale Cove on the Oregon coast and took some pictures, which I'll put up in a separate post on the website with a couple of links. Little Whale Cove is one of possible alternative locations of Francis Drake's Fair and Good Bay, and, in my opinion, far more likely than Drake's Bay on the coast of California, and a topic that, believe it or not, will come up briefly in this episode. Thank you, Dave. And listeners, keep those pictures of arcane historical sites coming. You, too, may receive special accolades on this podcast. Longstanding and attentive listeners know that my muse can take me in directions that I did not expect, and so it is with this week's episode. For the last couple of weeks, I've been diligently working away on an episode on the Spanish in New Mexico between the founding of Santa Fe in 1610 and some point in the 1650s. Haven't figured that out yet. That episode's been a bit of a slog to write because the documentary history's scant and much of what we know comes from archaeology, which for me at least, leads to more difficult storytelling. Unfortunately, I can't just blow that period off because of my perhaps neurotic commitment, mostly to myself but also to you guys, to cover the history of all the lands that constitute today's United States, not just the progress of Northern European settlement. Anyway, the reading for that episode, which was to have been number 97, but is now going to be number 98, I think, led me to realize that I had missed the Spanish exploration of the coast of California at the very beginning of the 1600s. Ideally, I would have covered that about a year ago, probably between the episode on Novo, Albion, and Drake's legacy, in which we discussed alternative theories for Novo, Albion, and the one called the rediscovery of New Mexico and the last conquistadors. That said, since we are returning to the Spanish in the first half of the 1600s for an episode or two, it's not wildly out of order to do this in a short episode now. Only listeners with photographic memories will remember the first time the Spanish explored the coast of today's state of California. In 1542, as the Soto and Coronado Entradas were breathing their last, Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo led two or perhaps three ships up the Pacific coast. Cabrillo discovered San Diego and the Channel Islands for the Spanish and may have gotten as far north as Point Arena, California. 
The Spanish would make another serious attempt at exploring the coast of the Golden State for 60 years with the expedition of Sebastian Vizcaino in 1602. In between, however, they would build an immensely profitable trade between the west coast of Mexico and their settlements in the Philippines, and the English and the Dutch would threaten it. Spain, as even mildly attentive listeners know, was the most powerful empire on earth for most of the 1500s. By the good fortune of having funded Columbus and then following up on the things he learned and promoted, they had spent much of the century stealing and otherwise extracting gold and silver out of the Western Hemisphere and building a profitable agricultural trade in sugar and tobacco and other crops grown by indigenous and then African enslaved people. But under Charles V and especially Philip II, Spain had overextended itself even before it decided to take on the English in the Atlantic in 1587. Almost endless wars in France and the Netherlands against Protestants and in the Mediterranean against the Ottomans had put even Philip into debt. Spain needed new sources of revenue, so in the 1560s, Philip ordered the viceroy of New Spain, Luis de Velasco, to outfit an expedition to gain control of the valuable trade in the Western Pacific. Crossing the Pacific in the age of sail was not straightforward. The Spanish had to learn the pattern of the winds, just as Columbus had done on his first voyage across the Atlantic. To solve the problem of the route to the Philippines and back to Mexico, they assigned an Augustinian priest named Andres de Urdaneta. The Spanish expedition reached the Philippines in February 1565, and their contingent of 400 soldiers began to get control of the chain from the natives and the Portuguese who'd gotten there first. They started with Cebu and moved on to Luzon. Eventually, in 1571, the Spanish would found Manila. Still in 1565, Erdneta took three ships north to the coast of Japan and found the currents and winds to take him east across the northern Pacific. That route took the returning ships to the west coast of the United States at roughly Cape Mendocino in California, only about 40 miles south of the Oregon border. There the ships turned south, picked up the California current in the northerlies, and sailed briskly down the coast to Acapulco. This was, of course, an extremely long voyage. The distance from Manila to California by that route was more than 7,000 statute miles, twice the length of an Atlantic crossing. By the time a Spanish trading galleon reached California, it would be running perilously low on water, and that which remained would be foul and brackish from sitting so long in barrels on a ship at sea. Scurvy would be spreading through the crew. The mortality rate was high, often 50%. The California coast became a natural place to pick up fresh water and food. The Spanish started to think about establishing a permanent base that could serve that function. Then in 1579, Francis Drake, not yet a knight, and the Golden Hind would pass through the Strait of Magellan and sail up the undefended western coast of the Americas, robbing the Spanish blind as he went. One of the objectives of Drake's mission was to find the western end of the imagined Northwest Passage through the Atlantic Ocean, the fabled Strait of Anian. So he aimed his now fully laden ship for the northwestern coast of North America. 
Fortunately, along the way, he had captured Spanish navigation charts, so he knew better than to fight the currents and winds pushing south along the California coast. As long-standing listeners know, Drake headed out into the Pacific, proceeding west by northwest more than 2,000 miles until roughly the latitude of Los Angeles, and then describing a wide loop to the northeast, arriving somewhere in the Pacific Northwest at perhaps 48 degrees north by late May. 48 degrees north is roughly where the southern tip of Vancouver Island looks across to the northwest corner of Washington State. The rest you know. Drake sailed north for a bit and then south again, eventually putting into a, quote, fair and good bay for the better part of two months. He would maintain good relations with the local indigenous peoples and claim the area, wherever it was, for England as Novo Albion. Then, enabled by the same stolen Spanish charts, he would sail across the Pacific and reach England in the late summer of 1580. The survival of Drake and the Golden Hind shocked the world. Only a few years later, in 1586 and 87, another English captain, Thomas Cavendish, would follow Drake's path into the Pacific. There he would capture his greatest prize, a Manila galleon named the Santa Ana, loaded with gold and precious goods from East Asia. Cavendish caught the Santa Ana as it lumbered south along the California coast toward Acapulco, relieved it of everything valuable, put the crew ashore, supposedly with provisions, and set the galleon ablaze. Then he quickly departed west, eventually completing his own immensely profitable circumnavigation. The abandoned Spanish crew, however, got back in the water, probably in some small boat, and managed to get control of the Santa Ana's burning hulk and put out the fire. Rather amazingly, they managed to repair the ship and eventually sailed it down the coast to Acapulco. Among the Santa Ana's survivors won Sebastian Vizcaino, and at least one source credits him with having organized the effort to rescue the burning galleon's hulk. One would have thought that Drake and Cavendish would have motivated the Spanish to build bases along the California coast from which they could protect the returning galleons. But the gears of royal and bureaucratic decision-making, thousands of miles away and now preoccupied with their naval war in the Atlantic against the English, did not make it a priority. Since there were only a very few galleons returning from Manila each year, perhaps they decided that the cost of maintaining defensive bases on the California coast was not a good investment among the alternatives. Unlike many bureaucrats even today, Spanish functionaries seem to have understood the concept of opportunity costs. Regardless, when the Dutch also broke through into the eastern Pacific at the very end of the 16th century, the Spanish resolved to explore the coast of California in earnest with the goal of finding a place for a permanent settlement and a good harbor. They selected Vizcaino to lead the voyage with some reticence. He'd been put in command of a troubled expedition to explore the Gulf of California in 1596. Although he did establish that Baja California wasn't an island, until then that was the leading theory of cartographers, his small fleet ran into bad weather and generally failed to achieve anything important. But there were a few other plausible candidates on the west coast of Mexico at the turn of the 17th century, so Vizcaino got the job offer after some bureaucratic debate. 
The Viceroy of New Spain issued formal instructions for the voyage on March 18, 1602. Vizcaino was to explore the coast from Cape St. Lucas at the tip of Baja to Cape Mendocino, almost the northern edge of today's state of California, a distance of more than 1,400 miles as the super crow would fly, and considerably more by sail. He was not to go north of Cape Mendocino. The viceroy ordered Vizcaino to map the coast only, and specifically not to explore any great bay in detail. The viceroy's concern was probably that if Vizcaino thought he found the Strait of Anian, he might go on a lengthy frolic and detour that would frustrate the particular objective of the mission. Neither was he to establish any permanent settlement, only to locate potential sites, and above all, he was to take great pains to avoid conflict with tribes encountered along the way. The Spanish did not want to poison the well, as it were, if they did decide to return and establish a permanent base. Vizcaino's fleet consisted of three good ships, the San Diego, the Santo Tomas, and the Tres Reyes. There were 200 hand-picked men among them, including one friar for each ship, pilots and a cartographer named Geronimo Martinez, who apparently would do an excellent job. They carried provisions for 11 months. The expedition left Acapulco on May 5, 1602, exactly as Bartholomew Gosnold was approaching Cape Cod during his trip to New England that same summer. The Vizcaino fleet worked its way up the coast of Mexico and then across to Cape St. Lucas, where it encountered stiff, contrary winds. They would spend the better part of five months arduously tacking up the west coast of Baja, California, finally reaching the border between today's Mexico and California on November 10, 1602. So here's a thing I haven't figured out. Why didn't Vizcayano do as Drake had done using the Spanish charts? He could have sailed west by northwest into the Pacific and arced to the east and mapped the west coast heading south with a current and wind at his back. Instead, he exhausted his crew and used up a good part of his supplies in brutal short tacks straight up the coast of Baja, California. I've seen no explanation for this in the various discussions of the voyage, but I'll speculate. Perhaps Vizcaino knew that Drake's route would take him much farther north than he was authorized to go. Remember, Drake hit the west coast roughly at the latitude of Seattle or Vancouver. Or, perhaps, it was even simpler than that. Maybe the viceroy ordered him to proceed up from the south, and Vizcaino was in no position to argue. Either way, it's hard to believe that this wasn't a topic of conversation among his own pilots. Like, what the hell are we doing? On November 12, 1602, the day of the Feast of St. James, San Diego in Spanish, the flagship, also named San Diego, entered the southernmost port of today's California. Not surprisingly, Vizcaino named the harbor San Diego. They even had a padre along. They spent eight days in the port of San Diego recovering from their arduous five-month trip up the coast and then proceeded north on November 20th. On November 24, 1602, they spotted Catalina Island. Since November 24th is the day of St. Catherine... I think you've got the picture. By my reckoning, they should have been able to see Catalina Island about 60 statute miles out of San Diego. 
So if it took them four days to sail that far, they still weren't making very good time. By comparison, the three ships of Columbus's first voyage made more than 100 statute miles per day on their western crossing in 1492. And ships had gotten a bit faster in the preceding century. Anyway, they did not come to anchor at Catalina for another three days. The record's unclear as to whether they sailed straight for the island or scouted around a bit before deciding to land. Either way, they landed on November 27th and explored the island, meeting the local Indians. Vizcaino saw an Indian idol of some sort and, quote, placed the name of Jesus on the head of the demon, telling the Indians that that was good and from heaven and that the idol was the devil. No doubt the Indians would have found that more than a little annoying had they understood Vizcaino, which they almost certainly did not. When Vizcaino got to one of the villages, an Indian woman brought him two fragments of silk cloth from China, telling him that they had got them from, quote, people like ourselves who had Negroes. Apparently, there'd been a shipwreck nearby. Vizcaino tried to recruit a couple of Indians as guides, but they wouldn't go on his ships because of fear of abduction. Remembering his orders to avoid conflict with the indigenous peoples, Vizcaino went on his way, Mystery shipwreck unresolved. From Catalina, they sailed north, finally with favorable winds. They rounded Point Concepcion, which they named, and sighted and named the St. Lucia Range between San Simeon and Carmel. By December 15th, they'd made Monterey Bay, which they named in honor of the Viceroy of New Spain. They had seen the mouth of the Carmel River and also named that. Vizcaino, it should be said, was no slouch when it came to assigning enduring names to places. Curiously, Californians have named almost nothing after him, much preferring to honor Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo. The mapping of Monterey Bay was, in the words of Charles E. Chapman, writing in 1920, the capital event of the expedition. In his paper, Sebastian Vizcaino, Exploration of California, published in the Southwestern Historical Quarterly in April 1920. We leave no stone unturned for the History of the Americans podcast. Chapman quoted Vizcaino, quote, We found ourselves to be in the best port that could be desired. For besides being sheltered from all the winds, it has many pines for masts and yards and live oaks and white oaks and water in great quantity all near the shore. The land is thickly peopled by Indians and very fertile, and its climate and the quality of its soil resembling Castile. Back to me. It was also the usual falderall about gold and silver in vast amounts inland from there, per the Indians. For once, this would turn out to be true, but purely by coincidence, and the Spanish wouldn't benefit. Roughly 245 years after Vizcaino's voyage, gold would be discovered at Sutter's Mill, California, only about 135 miles to the northeast of Monterey Bay. And the Comstock Lode, one of the largest silver discoveries in American history, would be found 10 years later, and only 60 or so miles northeast of Sutter's Mill. The trip by this point having taken much longer than expected, supplies were running short, and scurvy was spreading among the men. Still at Monterey, on December 29, 1602, 359 years to the day before your podcaster's birthday, 
Vizcaino decided to divide the fleet, sending the Santo Tomas with 34 of the sickest men back to Mexico. Only 11 of them would survive the return journey. On January 3, 1603, the two remaining ships continued north, moving rapidly now. On January 5th, however, a storm separated the two. And on that same day, Vizcaino and his flagship San Diego made the inappropriately named Drake's Bay. There's no record that Vizcaino assigned it his own name. Now back to Chapman, quote, On the 12th, Vizcaino at last reached Cape Mendocino, whence, in accord with his instructions, he was at liberty to turn back. But the storms drove him somewhat farther to the north until January 21st when he was able to start the return journey. Meanwhile, the intense cold and sickness of the men, of whom at one time there were only two sailors who could climb to the maintop sail, had combined with the storms to produce great hardship. The pitching was so violent that it threw both sick and well from their beds, and Vizcaino from his. He struck upon some boxes and broke his ribs with a heavy blow. Back to me. The voyage back to Mexico, with the wind and current at their back, was very fast. At the same time, with almost everybody sick with scurvy and the remaining provisions now rotten, Chapman described it as a race against death. They reached Mazatlan on February 18th, having covered at least 1,800 miles in less than a month. Mazatlan was then not really a place, but they got some food and water after locating a pack train loaded with supplies. There they rested until they regained their strength and finally made it back to Acapulco on March 21st. The third ship, the Tres Reyes, also made it north of Cape Mendocino and also then turned around. Along the way, both its captain and its pilot died, so the bosun, the officer in charge of ship's stores, took command. Trace Reyes reached New Spain on February 23, 1603, hot on the heels, or keel, of the San Diego. The expedition had lost between 42 and 48 lives, depending on the source, and neither the San Diego nor the Trace Reyes had seen the entrance to San Francisco Bay, Neither had Drake, notwithstanding the claims of California patriots. So in 1603, that spectacular port was still undiscovered by Europeans. From the point of view of the Spanish movers and shakers in 1603, Vizcano's mission had been a success. He returned with detailed maps of the California coast almost all the way to Oregon, and he had discovered and described Monterey Bay, which would have been More important, if there'd been no San Francisco Bay, and as I just noted, that vast harbor was not then known to exist. Vizcaino's reputation was greatly enhanced. He'd been the least bad alternative among slim pickings when given his command, and he had returned having done all that he had been asked. His reports of the voyage, three letters in a journal, were published widely, and he was sufficiently recognized as a successful admiral that the Conde de Monterey, after whom Vizcaino had named the bay, gave him command of the next galleon bound for Manila, a posting that would have made him a rich man. Sadly for Vizcaino, though, he and others on his mission were sacrificed to nasty Spanish politics. Now to Chapman, quote, In 1603, shortly after Vizcaino's return, the Conde de Monterey was succeeded as viceroy by the Marques de Montes Claros, 
who not only threw cold water on the plans of his predecessor, but also acted in a manner displaying either spite or else a desire for graft. In a letter to the king, he objected to the former viceroy having appointed Vizcaino as commander of the galleon sailing from Alcapoco in 1604, six months after Montesclaros himself should be in office. He had countermanded the order and made Vizcaino alcalde mayor, chief justice and mayor, of a small town, which he stated was fully as much as he deserved. Later, he claimed that Vizcaino had tried to bribe him to make him commander of the galleon, wherefore he dismissed him from the service. The fate of Martinez, the expert cartographer, was even worse. The Conde de Monterey had given him a rich appointment on the galleon. Not only did Montesclaros deprive him of this, but he also caused charges to be brought against him for forgery, and Martinez was condemned and hanged. These measures produced a distinctly unfavorable impression at court, and there were several royal decrees of 1606 whose combined purport was the following. Vizcaino was to be made general of the galleon leaving Acapulco in 1607 and was to make a thorough survey of Monterey on the return voyage with a view to the founding of a settlement there. Upon his arrival in New Spain, he was to be given a number of colonists of the best type to settle at Monterey, these men were to be offered such inducements as might seem to be necessary, presumably lands with the Indians in bondage, and a considerable sum of money out of the royal treasury was to be provided for the new enterprise. Back to me. It was not to be. Vizcaino had left for Spain, so the king's order that he be made general of the galleon leaving in 1607 passed him at some point during the long journey home. Montesclaros continued to lobby against a settlement at Monterey, arguing that it was too close to Mexico, less than a month sailing time, given the favorable currents and winds, to make much of a difference for the Manila galleons. But an established port of call there would prove invaluable to the English or the Dutch if it fell into their hands. Finally, he revived an old story about lost islands in the Pacific between 35 and 40 degrees that would be better for the trans-Pacific trade and argued in favor of an expedition in search of those islands. He won his argument apparently on the merits. The upshot was that Spain didn't settle Monterey or anywhere else in California for more than 150 years. It's interesting to wonder what would have happened had the Spanish moved into central California in force in the early 1600s instead of turning away. Would that beautiful land, far more pleasant than New Mexico, have attracted large Spanish populations 200 years before the first Anglo-American settlers would be in a position to arrive? If California had been heavily populated with settlers from New Spain, it might have been much harder to wrest away from Mexico. It's not wild to imagine, therefore, that the seemingly small matter of the Marques de Montesclaros taking over the viceroyship from the Comte de Monterey might have changed the course of American history. Thank you for indulging me in this cleaning up of a loose end in the timeline. Next week, we will continue with the Spanish in the Southwest, looking at the development of the Spanish missions and settlements in New Mexico between the founding of Santa Fe, which we covered in late 2021, and the mid-17th century. Then we will head back to the East Coast for the arrival of the Puritans at Massachusetts Bay.
Thank you again for listening. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, Write us a nice review on Apple and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And, of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.